It's also great in the short term for the landlords because we get more lot rent, but in the long term, I just don't know how much I want to be a partner with the government. And, you know, I think, and this is, this is speculative and I could be wrong, but I think in the past, the government has really incentivized us as investors, real estate owners, et cetera, you know, purely through tax codes. And I think this is going to ebb and flow. It's going to be better and worse, but I think we're going to probably see less and less of that and, and more restriction, um, especially in the affordable housing space. Yo, this is Christian D. Evans with Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to our amazing podcast. This is where we reveal the top 1% of business concepts and systems and processes to scale eight and nine figure businesses. We interview top level eight and nine figure CEOs, business owners, and amazing TEDx speakers like David Meltzer. We got Nick Cavuto, Pascal Bachman, and so many others. And if you feel like this resonates with you, please share this with your friend, your family, and make sure you impact them as well because we're trying to spread the message on those that do not know how to scale eight, nine figure businesses and talking higher level business concepts. So guys, remember, enjoy the episode and be uncommon if you can. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. I am your host, as always, Christian D. Evans. And we have a very special guest on today. Let me just share with you what he's been able to accomplish. It's actually really, really remarkable. Now, he is actually this, the managing partner at Four Peaks Capital Partners. Now, they focus on uh, lucrative private investment opportunities, which has been reserved mostly for the ultra-wealthy. They've been able to actually bring this down to every qualified investor now in the real estate market, which we're going to be diving into, but also the trajectory, the difference between growth and preservation and what's happening in the real estate market at a macro level. And we're going to be unpacking that. It's going to be a lot of fun. So stay tuned here. Now, just to share with you his background, he's actually um, produced almost 2,000 projects um, totaling over a billion dollars, including hospitals, courthouses, federal buildings, casinos, mills, gold processing facilities, silver projects, multifamily homes, shopping center, and so much more. Um, he has started most notable in the construction company that scaled quickly to more than 100 employees and sold over sold at a $12 million valuation, making it onto the incorporated 2009, 2,500 fastest growing companies in America. I'm very excited about having the managing partner and COO at Four Peaks Capital Partners on our podcast today, my friend, Mike Ayala. How are you doing today, Mike? You know, I'm so good today and I'm excited to do this. I just think it's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of good energy. So, and it's a great time to do it. Mike, I'm really looking forward to this conversation as well. And what I find so interesting is we were just talking offline here about some fun things. And obviously, you are also the the, the managing partner at Velocity Capital Ventures. We're going, to, we're going to be diving in here shortly as well in their thesis, investment thesis. But I really want to ask you, because normally I ask people about their journey and their story. But I want to ask you, Mike, what are you seeing right now in the real estate market at a macro level? Because you found you, you brought some really key points up that I want to bring loop back around on today's podcast. So just lay it out for us and let's just tear it apart, man. You know, I, I think, um, and this is what kind of spawned the conversation. I think we're at a really interesting inflection point when it comes to real estate. And what I've been talking with our investors our partners, and even just looking at our own portfolio, my wife and I still have a portfolio of, of single families and commercial buildings and even some mobile home parks that we own personally. And so when I'm looking at everything here, Christian, I, I think the key word is like speculation, which, you know, a, a portion of our portfolio, I've always, you know, put into speculative assets. But 
when I think about speculation today, I think everything that's going on in the world is somewhat speculative. Like what's it going to look like in one year, two years, three years? We're at this weird point where I never want to be the guy that says, you know, it's different this time, but everything is so different. Like what the heck is going on? And when you look at 08 and what happened there, and I'm not the guy that's going to say, you know, real estate's going to be fine or real estate's going to be bad. Cause I don't know really the, the big picture outcome of it. But really, when I look at it from an overarching perspective, and the reason why we at Four Peaks Capital Partners love the manufactured housing space is because it's affordable housing. So at the end of the day, Christian, no matter what happens, people need housing, people need shelter, people need food, people need water and clothing. The first podcast that I was ever on uh, was with Buck Joffrey, a, a friend of mine, uh, Wealth Formula podcast. And, and he this was years ago, and he called it uh, Maslow's Basic Human Needs because we're in the affordable housing space. And so when I look at everything from a macro perspective, I don't know what the heck's going on. I get around really smart people like you and many other you know private equity groups were partnered with some family offices. And I just try to take all the information and condense it down. But really at the end of the day, and this is what we were talking about off camera, there's only so much that I can control. What I can control is right in front of me. And do I believe that long-term real estate is going to be okay? Yes, people need a place to live. But the real challenge that I see right now, whether interest rates are up or whether interest rates come down, people are saying that you know the world's going to implode. But the people that I'm talking to on a daily basis, including some of my greatest friends and mentors, are they're sitting on a ton of cash. And so like when I try to reconcile all of this, if real estate starts dropping, everybody's like waiting for good deals. So what are good deals? And when does this money start number one, trickling in. And number two, when does it come rushing in? And so I just have all these, sometimes I feel like I'm schizophrenic because I'm like, you know, yeah, people aren't buying with interest rates, but then also people aren't selling because they have such a good interest rate. And so I don't know, we're kind of at this deadlock point. And when I look at real estate long-term, the affordability piece of real estate, even when you're looking at rents and everything else is the real challenging conversation that we have to kind of try to figure out and I think coming out of 08, it created a lot of opportunity from, you know, 2011, 2012 to 2022, really earlier this year, that I just don't know that we're going to have that buying opportunity again at the scale that we've had, you know, going forward. Am I still an optimist on real estate? Yes, but I think it's more for me, I'm looking at real estate as more of a wealth preservation aspect than I've seen or thought of it. In the last 10, 15 years, I've thought of it as a huge growth opportunity. And there might be some of that in the next few years, but long-term, I think the major, major wins for the majority of people already happened. So when you're talking about growth versus preservation, um, unpack that for us a little bit in, in, in context for our audience. So we know what you're, kind of, what you're leaning toward a little bit, what that makes sense. Yeah. So one of the things that I've always loved about real estate is if I buy a piece of real estate and I'm thinking about it long-term, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, I'll just go back to why I got into real estate. And this might help kind of set the stage for my views on long-term. So in 2005, I was running a, a plumbing and HVAC business. It was scaling really quickly. My accountant said, Hey, you need to, you know, get some access to real estate. It'll help you tax wise. And I started thinking to myself, I knew a couple of people that were real estate investors and my wife and I, Kara, we set a goal in 2005 of two income producing properties a year for 10 years. So my thought back then was if I go and buy two single family properties a year for the next 10 years, by the time I'm 65 or 70 and I'm still running this HVAC company, I'll have a 20 house portfolio that's paid off and it'll pay me a thousand dollars a month per home. And, you know, I've got $20,000 a year of, um, 
cash flow, if you will. So that's how my journey with real estate kind of started. I was literally thinking that I was going to be running a plumbing and HVAC company the rest of my life. And then I was going to have this little, you know, nest egg real estate portfolio of 20 houses. Well, that's how I think about real estate still from a wealth preservation standpoint. If I bought 20 houses in 2005 and I still had those, which I still do have some of those, almost guaranteed that they're going to be worth more money. They're going to be increasing in cash flow. And long-term, I think they're going to be a good investment. When we look at periods of time like 2012, 2015, 18, I actually stopped buying in 2019 and I missed part of the market cycle because I thought, you know, I thought things were getting really expensive then. And then when 2020 happened, you know, I thought the world was ending. And this is why I'm talking about speculative. Like we got to be really careful during these times because I was thinking that the world's going to end. And so, you know, and with that being said too, everything that I'm saying today could be wrong because I was wrong in 2020 too. But when we start thinking about that, that the gains that were made in real estate over that period of time, let's just say 2012 to 2022, were quite astronomical. And even right now, we've got this dip happening and people are like, the world is ending, but compared to what? Like if you bought, if you bought real estate and even just dollar cost averaged over that period of time, even if your portfolio is losing some money right now, you're in pretty good shape. So when I look at real estate long-term, if you buy that, hold that, you're investing in the right markets, I think over time, you're still going to generate wealth, but are you going to generate these huge wins that we've seen since 2012? No, I don't, I don't, I don't think we're going to see those periods of time um, very often. And so when I look going forward, in fact, from an affordability standpoint, we're seeing this on the ground because again, we're invested in manufactured housing in 13 States. Our average lot rent is $400 a month all in, you know, our homes are probably averaging seven, $800 a month in lot rent. You can't even touch that across the board. When you look at the challenges that everyday Americans are having across the country with affordability, and now that the Fed is putting pressure on company growth, job growth, et cetera, and trying to slow that down, I have a feeling that, you know, things are going to get even more challenging on a day-to-day -day basis. And so when we look at the affordability aspect, if 50 to 60% of Americans get to the point where they can't afford to buy a house and rents are just continuing to, you know, increase there, it has to stabilize somewhere. And my, my wild, crazy prediction and 2020 was an example of this. I think that the government is going to start stepping in and subsidizing more of housing, which is going to be mean more control. Yes. Even in red States. Yes. Even in cities like Dallas, where the city council in Dallas is talking about limiting the amount of uh, real estate that can be sold to investors. When we start having these kinds of conversations, um, and again, I can't control all of that. And I refuse to run for city council. So outside of that, what can I do? I can just look at the macro effects of what I think is coming. And I think we're going to be stabilized to some degree. Is there still going to be some upside? Yes. Can we still make money in real estate? Yes. Is it going to be as aggressive as it was? I don't think so. You mentioned some really good solid points because um, I, I saw this and I found this very interesting because definitely when the interest rates were high, I saw some of these houses that were like three or four times, you know, your 1500 square foot, you know, three bed, two bed, whatever it may be, like 2500 square foot, whatever it was. And they were asking half a million depending upon the location, et cetera. But I started realizing, you know, like, the, you know, you contextual, sure, you're paying interest rate relatively low, you get that really locked in, but you're paying a very pretty penny on that on the top end. And so you're asking yourself contextually is like, is that a good value, you know, value prop, if you will, because um, 
Otherwise, you know, maybe it's just, it's really worth quarter of a million, right, house. And so I always found that very interesting because what you're basically saying also is you're seeing the rents increasing. And if people can't afford housing, they go to renting. But as you become, as you and I know, it's becoming even, even becoming more, more crazy. And the also people can't afford housing because of course the interest rates are high and then as well as the pricing is really relatively high. So they can't really get a loan, et cetera. And also I understand that uh, you know, there's this constricting that's going on. So people are going to just, you know, something happens. And uh, let me ask you, what do you think, and maybe this might be more of just kind of a political opinion or just opinion in general, but what do you think would be the, the solution or maybe some things that these people or our listeners should be aware of to kind of prepare or, you know, put in the right foundation to prepare for this, this circumstance? So, when, when we talk about listeners, are we talking about investors? Are we talking about people that need housing? Like who, because I think there's a couple, who, who are we talking to? Let's, uh, for, for most of our listeners, they are investors. They have owned some real estate. They obviously um, leverage the real estate for some of their wealth, uh, wealth depreciation, et cetera. So uh, more of an investor um, uh, perspective. Okay, perfect. Um, which, yeah, I, I assumed it was your audience, but it just I, my brain goes a couple of different directions. And when I think about when I think about this from a from a big picture, what you know, what would I be doing? I'm not divesting my entire real estate portfolio. My wife and I are probably going to keep a certain you know percentage of it. Um, for me, right now, it's a it's about you know where should I take chips off the table and where should I stay engaged? At what level did I get in? How can I leverage that? And for me, it's always about cash flow, and then also looking forward to, you know, how do I leverage but not over leverage? Because I think, and this isn't, you know, anything earth shattering, but I think that home ownership is going to drop, and I think renters are going to increase. But again, I think some of the external forces are going to control some of these rents. And there's different markets, so this is where we get to the micro. And I do agree that there's certain regions that are probably going to be better than others. But again, I think some of that is going to be even the White House right now, and this is a positive thing for our industry in manufactured housing. The White House is coming out right now. Well, they came out in like May or June. If you just go Google uh, White House uh, manufactured housing, they're talking about uh, linking uh, federal money to local municipalities uh, in, in, in asking them to ease zoning. And part of this, it's an affordability initiative. Yeah. And so, you know, and this started actually, I don't, I don't think this is a Republican Democrat thing because this started under Trump and, and Ben Carson said this over and over and over at the manufactured housing events, they were looking for, you know, ways to subsidize and, and actually penalize local municipalities to ease up zoning for affordable housing. And you look at projects, I've seen them all over Austin already. These are funded by government. They're low-income apartments that are going up. And as more and more and more of that happens, it makes me think back to when I went to Russia in like 2006 and everywhere is these government subsidized projects. And I don't think we're going to get completely there, but at the end of the day, when the government says that they're going to get involved in something and they're going to start subsidizing and controlling, what that means to me at the end of the day is number one, how do I take advantage of some of that? But also number two, it's going to control the upside Um that you know we can we can kind of make in certain markets. So I think as back to your point, I think your listeners have to kind of balance between how do we make the money and invest where we want to, but also watch the regulations that are coming down. Because even 
let me let me close the point that I was saying on the manufactured housing thing. If you Google that White House manufactured housing, part of that initiative is they want Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to start creating programs. And this has been in the works for four years that will actually finance the chattel loans. Chattel is the mobile homes that we bring in because they're not permanentized. They're not on foundation. So they're treated essentially like a car. They have like a car title. Fannie and Freddie are going to start financing those so that we have more access to more affordable housing, which is a good thing. Uh, in the big picture. And it's also a good thing for guys like me that are in the manufactured housing space. But again, when I hear things like that, how do I take advantage of it? We'll buy as many houses as we possibly can right now while inventory's up and while prices have kind of stabilized because in 2020, we couldn't get houses. And the prices went from, for us, we're a wholesaler. So we buy direct from the factories. We were paying 42,000 all in for a manufactured three bedroom, two bath house set. Now we're pushing 55, 60,000. And we couldn't even get them for 12 to 18 months, which before COVID, it was four to eight weeks to get a house. Well, now all that's kind of stabilized. Our manufacturers are saying, hey, we can give you 40 houses a month if you want them. And the prices are starting to taper down because all this is caught up. So when I hear the government say, we're going to get involved from one side, I think about it and I say, okay, how do I take advantage of this? Buy more houses, figure out how to set as many as possible and utilize that government financing on the backside. But the other side of it is I always know whether it's PPP, whether it's SBA backed loans or whether it's chattel loans that, you know, the government is now financing 40% of my portfolio to the residents. There's going to be all kinds of restrictions. There's going to be all kinds of hoops I have to jump through. And ultimately at the end of the day, they're probably going to restrict the amount of money that I can charge. Even if they don't get me up front, they're probably going to start changing policies over time and hold it over our heads. So if I had to just kind of, you know, give some big picture in, uh, information or the way that I think about it, it's that. How do I take advantage of the opportunity, but also hedge my bets on what's really coming when it comes to the government getting involved? And I think it's going to get more and more and more. And when you're, when you're talking like subsidized, you're talking like Metro, the Section 8 kind of stuff. And they're, they're partnering basically with investors like yourselves that have a huge portfolio. And you guys go out there, basically build out the foundation and find those tenants that can't afford regular, you know, um, medium, you know, um, class A kind of apartments. You're, you're coming over here and saying, hey, this is what we've got going on. And then they'll subsidize that, that, um, that monthly payment. Yeah. And it's great for the, you know, it's great for the residents because they get access to a more affordable financing because right now the private companies that are financing these homes to residents are charging between eight and 12%, which actually that doesn't sound horrible nowadays. Um, <laughs> that's probably going to continue to increase. But if the government steps in and starts financing this, it's going to be longer terms because the private companies won't finance for more than 10 to 20 years. The government's probably going to put some 30 year financing on these um, they're probably going to bring the interest rates down. So it's great for the residents. It's also great in the short term for the landlords because we get more lot rent. But in the long term, I just don't know how much I want to be a partner with the government. And, you know, I think, and this is, this is speculative and I could be wrong, but I think in the past, the government has really incentivized us as investors, real estate owners, et cetera, you know, purely through tax codes. And I think this is going to ebb and flow. It's going to be better and worse. But I think we're going to probably see less and less of that and, and more restriction, um, especially in the affordable housing space. Yeah, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because, one, a lot of our listeners, and I'm very familiar with those, those kind of industries, 
In fact, I've looked at a few. I try to stay away from that whenever I do syndication because um, I'm not really active in that. But whenever I do syndication, it's more of those class B, class A kind of uh, compartment complexes. However, though, I understand the value of this because, you know, governments, they do want to come alongside. They want to provide this. And so they will incentivize investors like yourself that are willing to do the work. And I do understand your margins tend to be pretty high as well just because of the, the ecosystem, just depending upon, obviously, the industry, et cetera, and, and the, the, the clientele. I want to ask you a little macro as well. You mentioned this, and I want to loop back around on it because I've seen construction. Obviously, the inflation has gone up. Price of of developing the supply chain issue situations. Um, you know, everything is so variable right now in regards to building out something, developing something. And I've seen some construction companies. I don't have that many friends in this, but I, I've got a few that I've talked to, and they were building something, and then literally within three months or two months, uh, now all of a sudden they had to offset the cost and say, hey, it's another million dollars, $2 million to build this project. And where's that coming from, right? You know, and we, you and I know, understand that it comes down from the, to the baseline, you know, client uh, because they just offset all the way throughout the whole, the whole ecosystem. But I wanted to ask you just at a macro level how that has affected you guys. You did say that it's obviously stabilizing. Do you feel like it will get worse or do you think it will get better? Because as you know, you and I know, there's so many variables that go into, you know, your, your guys' investment strategy and, and thesis. So initially, I mean, even still, even though uh, delivery timelines are down and even though prices are stabilizing and I think they're going to drop some because of excess inventory, um, even finding labor to set these homes is an extreme challenge right now. Um, you know, getting through uh, permitting and processes with local municipalities is an extreme challenge right now because even you know, even local governments are inundated. And so when I look at it just from our perspective, um, you know, the, the other side of this is, you know, that the fact that we're having a hard time getting inventory, I have waiting lists. So if I could set more houses, um, I could fill more houses. So right now demand is through the roof. If I can figure out those problems, um, then we're good in the short term. So the, the other side of that too, I've got a friend that builds a lot of apartments, just like you were talking about, and they're having the same challenges. Like, how do we balance all this? And sometimes from start to finish, you know, these guys are in a hundred million dollar apartment uh, complex. Sometimes they're in a million, $2 million just on plans. And then, you know, permitting fees, they're three, $4 million. And I mean, they're $10 million before they even really get to start talking to a bank. And then when you put the you know, you put the pipe in the ground. I mean, they're, they're probably into it 25, 30 million on a hundred million dollar project before they really even get to the point where they get to start drawn from the bank. There's so much risk. And this is where, again, when we get into the big picture and it's like, what can I control? Um, my head starts spinning on this because all those things being said and, and how risky it is. And also, you know, if it takes one to five years to get that project, number one, zoned, planned, designed, out of the ground, completed, and then full. That's a lot of risk right now for people that are, you know, taking on these projects, thinking, what does the next five years look like? So the other side of this argument is, I think supply probably continues to diminish because there is so much risk right now for people that are, again, speculating. I hate, everything's so speculative right now. And I think, you know, as investors, we're trying to eliminate the majority of the speculation and maybe put a small percentage of our portfolio into speculation. Well, everything's speculation right now. So I'm just trying to come back to like, what do I know for sure? And, and this is where like, you know, you were 
talking about some of your audience and listeners are invested in businesses. And I, I don't want to shift gears yet, but I think that there's a lot of um, argument right now. And again, it's not that I don't love real estate, but I think there's an, a lot of argument to be said that maybe smaller you know, businesses that are just tried and true, things that everyday Americans need, it might be a safer bet right now than speculating on real estate over time. So that's kind of where, that's kind of where I tie this together because as, as apartments start to slow down and we don't have enough inventory, we didn't have enough inventory anyway. And as they stop building, I think it, it could do one of two things. It could either continue to put pressure on, on real estate prices, meaning going up, but then who's going to pay for it? Because you know, the Fed is intentionally like, how do they, their mandate is to control inflation. So how do they do it? Interest rates and job growth. Well, they're trying to crush the job growth right now, I think. And if that continues to either flatline or drop and people can't afford it now, how are they going to afford it when prices, either wages, either stabilize or go down? So that's where I get kind of like not super optimistic on the future of real estate long-term. And the other thing too, and you know this, and a lot of your audience probably knows this too. When we were watching this over the last say, you know, five years, but really three years, there was people, there were, there was private equity groups that were buying this stuff at a three cap, four cap when, you know, I mean, we can't even get interest rates at five. So I'm like, I'm trying to wrap my brain around like, what are these people doing? They're hedging their bets on wealth preservation, in my opinion. And if things go up, great. But the preservation is the main thing right now that I think the majority of them were looking at. And so I look at that long-term, I think real estate's great preservation. I think there's going to be some ups and downs, but I just don't know how people continue to afford real estate long-term if, if real estate keeps going up. So if people can't afford it, then, you know, where does that land? I think it somehow we have to start stabilizing rents and that's just why I'm not long-term. Again, I'm, I like real estate long-term. It'll probably continue to be 40% of my portfolio. I just don't think we're going to have the big wins. It's interesting conversation. It really is because, um, you know, we ask ourselves, how did we get here? And you're going to, like you mentioned, if, if the rents just constantly increase, that just outpaces everything. And, you know, the, you and I know that the income for the you know, average American is not, you know, keeping up with, with obviously the cost of living right now. And it's just going increasing. And so naturally there's going to be at some, some point, there's going to be that turn. And it's going to be like, okay, well, shoot, now what happens, right, in that circumstance? We don't want to, you know, visualize that. But obviously, I do understand, you know, uh, putting so much so much capital in this. Uh, it's just going to be interesting to see how this all works out. And I don't want to be gloom and doom. Uh, I do want to bring up your, your venture, uh, Velocity Capital Ventures. Uh, because like you mentioned, um, I'm in the private equity space. And I, I love it because like you mentioned, it's a little bit more controllable. Like I can come in and, I, you know, I'm... Um, I can't control the interest rates. I can't control all this other stuff that's that's variable in so many different other industries. But there are certain things that I can control when I, you know, obviously own a, a company that obviously these people are going to constantly buy regardless, right, of of an up or down market. Uh, my question to you is, you know, help me help me understand about your guys' thesis at Velocity Capital Ventures and what your focus point is, and obviously your growth strategy, man. So it's it's kind of interesting because even prior to starting Four Peaks Capital Partners and going full force into consolidating, you know, manufactured home communities, um, this vision at Velocity Venture Partners actually goes back to 2011 for me. I sold my first business in 2014, and along the way, I started just looking at you know the fundamentals when it came to plumbing and HVAC companies and the fact that everybody needs it. Um, it's not going away. When you look at disruption, technology. 
AI, all of that kind of stuff. There's a lot of industries that are going to get, you know, disrupted, if you will. Um, but this is an industry that I've, you know, seen the thesis for a long time and not just plumbing and HVAC for the listeners. That just happens to be what I know and love. And I've got some, you know, coaches and, and uh, some consulting companies and stuff that we work with. I, I worked with a coach back in the day that helped scale my company. And, and then they started a big consulting firm. That's probably the top two consulting companies specifically for the service industry, those two trades. So I'm not just bullish on those trades. It's just what I love and know. But I think anything that you look at, again, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, food, water, shelter. You know, when we think about clean water, heat, um, you know, landscaping, when we think of uh, laundromats, when we think of all these like just kind of boring businesses, as a friend of mine, Cody Sanchez says, um, when we think of these boring businesses that also an entire generation of baby boomers that are, you know, retiring at the speed of light right now, they've, I remember a book that I read early on called The Millionaire Next Door. I think I read it in early 2000s. And it was just talking about these boring businesses, right? And the majority of millionaires are people that are wearing t-shirts. Um, and again, this is an older book, but they just have these boring businesses and it's literally your neighbor next door. And so over time, as I realized that, you know, I made the majority of my money early on in one of these boring businesses that we just happened to scale. Timing was part of that. Um, knowing that I didn't know what I didn't know was part of that. Um, hiring the right people was part of that, but I made the majority of my money in a boring business. And then I started investing it in real estate, which helped compound the wealth component of, of what Kara and I accomplished and allowed me to do so much more. And so bringing it back, when I sold my business in 2014, I've said this so many times, it was the best and worst day of my life because I'm 34 years old and I've achieved the American dream. I still get a multiple six figure payment every single year. Um, from that exit, it's almost over. So I have to kind of like replace that, but it was a 10 year exit. And, and I'm not saying that to like brag, but these are the foundational boring businesses that literally, if you, it took me 10 years to build it and it's continued to pay me for 10 more years. And when I think about the fundamentals of those types of businesses, after that happened, and I said, it was the best and worst day of my life, I shifted gears. And, and the thing that's interesting, Christian, even coming back to like real estate, I went full-time into real estate with a business partner who had already started, um, he had already started syndicating mobile home parks. He was, he still is, he's still my partner. He's great at marketing. I mean, he's really great at, uh, you know, structuring lending and, and working with the big family offices and all that stuff. And I was really great at operations. So we made a great team and we just kind of accelerated off of what he had already started building. So I went from the small business that I knew and loved and I shifted to real estate. And the thing that I've realized is the reason why I did that is because I thought real estate was easy. And it had been for me because it was pretty passive. Karen and I had bought 45 single family properties. We had three commercial buildings and we owned five mobile home parks that again, were somewhat passive, but I, I used the money that I was making in my boring business. And I poured it into this wealth preservation asset. I put a team in place that helped me manage it. And so I just thought it was easy in the back of my mind. I'm like, this is easy money. Well, then you fast forward and I start syndicating and all of a sudden I have a hundred employees again. And what I realized, and we're in 13 States, I've got employees all over the country. I woke up one day and I realized this is not a passive wealth generating real estate investment. I just built another company. And I think it's an important correlation because I think a lot of people that, that came and rushed into real estate, there's a lot of people that own short-term rentals. 
um, a, a smaller amount, like let's say one to three short-term rentals. They own a few rental properties that they've bought in the last 10 years and they're in trouble right now because they, they, they thought this, the music was just going to go on forever. And what they didn't realize is that, yeah, it was great. And again, I'm not a, listen, long-term I'm optimistic on real estate and I'm actually really optimistic on the United States of America. And I'm really optimistic on our ability to make more money and, and win from all of this. We just got to get our mindset straight. And it's even those shaking moments where I realized I made all my money in a boring cash flowing business. And then I put it into boring cash flowing real estate. And, and then I, I shifted my thinking around real estate. Real estate is no different than selling plumbing or HVAC to a customer. It just happens to be that the widget happens to be the house or the apartment building or the mobile home park or whatever it is. And I think the last 10 years have really skewed a lot of people into thinking that real estate is easy money because we were on this crazy upward trend and now we're going to begin to stabilize and there's still a ton of opportunity, but we need to be really careful and see real estate for what it is. It's either a passive investment or it's a small investment that's going to take a lot of your time and, or it's a big business like, like we've built. And it, again, I woke up one day and I realized I looked around and I was like, oh my God, that I didn't, th this is not a passive. I, I built a business around a product called real estate. Yeah. I love what you're saying there. And I, I love that, that what you mentioned where it's like the boring stuff, right? And we've heard this so many times, but it's like, we just don't do it. Everybody wants that new sexy fun thing because we all do the math in our head. Oh my gosh, if I buy, you know, X amount of cryptocurrency at blah, 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 then, oh my gosh, and it goes up to 50,000, whatever. And you just start thinking, oh, I'm going to be a bajillionaire, right? And, and you've seen that where some people have had, you know, situations, but we always like to contextualize it and say, oh yeah, I'm going to be that one. But I love what you mentioned as well. And coming back to kind of, you know, having the right mindset in regards to what instrument, because I've seen this as well, where, hey, when, when things are going good, we always think they're going to go good. And when things are going bad, we always think they're going bad. And I think it's interesting because there is, you, you and I see that there's a huge, probably large, large recession coming, probably much bigger than we anticipate. Because like you mentioned, there are going to be some big factors uh, and some factors that we probably don't even see that's going to hit us blindside. I like to ask you, Mike, what are you doing to prepare for that, um, whether that's maybe sitting in cash, maybe just kind of you know downsizing a little bit, liquidating certain positions to make sure you capitalize on the the future opportunities that will be presented, because I understand you know um, that when a down market happens, naturally there's going to be a lot of opportunities, and I know that uh, Warren Buffett specifically, uh, Apple, large companies are they've been stocking up dry powder for years even during covid they were kind of anticipating now i don't know if that was con you know coincidental which i don't believe so but i do think that they were anticipating some some big reaction on the back end so i wanted to get your get your perspective on that i don't know if you've ever seen the economic clock but if you just think about a clock at you know 12 o'clock is like the best it gets and six o'clock is like i mean it's it's the bottom of the barrel and i kind of alluded to this earlier but um, I think I was a little bit early on the clock. Like I was thinking in 2019 that, that we were already at, you know, five o'clock getting close to six o'clock. Um, and I was wrong. Yeah. And you know, that's going to happen from time to time. Um, I think we just have to be right more than we're wrong, but I'm, I'm sitting at somewhat of an advantage because, um, I was, a I was skeptical earlier than I should have been. So did I leave some money on the table because I thought we were at five o'clock and we were really maybe at two or three o'clock? Yeah, I missed out on some opportunity. But also, Christian, in 2019, 
we brought in, uh, had a conversation with CFO and we looked at our entire portfolio, which was 35 mobile home park communities at that point in time. I was looking at mine and Kara's, you know, personal portfolio. I've sold about half of my uh, houses in my personal portfolio. Um, I sold two of the commercial buildings. The third one's under contract right now to sell. Um, the majority of my personal mobile home parks are sold. When we look at our portfolio, we brought in um, our CFO and, and looked at the 35 communities and we identified um, 19 of them that we really wanted to keep and 16 of them that we wanted to exit. And we started that process. And some of those were because we had a single community in Tennessee that was a really great community, but it was our only property in Tennessee. And we were bullish on Tennessee, but the fact that we were going to stop buying, um, we decided to exit that property. And so we sold properties for different reasons. Some of them were performing. Some of them were not performing. Some of them were because they were in states that we didn't want to be in. And so when we look at it now, we're down to 19 communities and I'm get, I'll get to the answer to your question, but I started, I'm somewhat in a fortunate spot because we started a little earlier. If, if right now I was doing what we did in 2019, I might be in trouble. Um, but we started it in 2019 because we thought we were at five o'clock when we're probably at five o'clock right now. And, and so I'm a little bit further along. So what am I doing? Um, I would love to say that I'm sitting on a ton of cash, but I'm actually not because I'm investing. We're pouring a lot right now into Velocity Venture Partners. Um, we've got some acquisitions happening right now in the HVAC space. We're pouring a lot of money and capital right now into um, the car sharing uh, platform that we have. It's uh, basically, we've partnered with an operating company that rents cars out privately and on Turo, and they're just crushing it. And so we've poured a lot of money into you know getting that built up. We still have about 650 homes that we need to set in our mobile home park portfolio. So we're, we're stacking houses as fast as we can possibly get them set because of demand. And so, you know, my goal over the next one to three years, get the mobile home park portfolio stabilized and either refinanced or exit it, and then start shifting to some of these other kind of more boring businesses. And even if we keep the mobile home park portfolio, Again, I'm not negative on real estate. I think real estate's going to perform well over time. I just think if you took 100 people that all wanted to invest in real estate, probably 10 or 20 of them are going to do really well in real estate long-term and 80% of them are not because it's not going to be an easy money anymore. So I'm not negative on real estate. I just think that it's not going to be as easy as it was. No, and that makes sense. And I appreciate your perspective in that regard, you know, and I, I just find it very interesting conversation. And Mike, I really appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate you just kind of laying that, that foundation out as well. And having a different perspective in regards to what's going on right now. Um, some people think total different spectrum where one, no, we're not going into, it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be hunky dory. Some people that are more like, okay, hey, you know, anticipating, like you mentioned at six o'clock, it's going to happen. It's going to just anticipating. And like you mentioned, it's, it's nice to be in that situation. Uh, Mike, for those that are listening, and that want to just be part of your ecosystem, be part of what you got going on, whether they're an investor, whether they want to deploy some capital with some of your projects. How do they reach out to you, my man? So really, I mean, the Investing for Freedom podcast is, you know, we're there twice a week. Um, www.velocityventurepartners.com is our, our main webpage. So um, those, those two things are probably the best way to find us. I'm pretty active on Instagram at the Mike Ayala. So one of those three methods, depending on what they love. 
Awesome, guys. Those links will be in the description below, so make sure you stop what you're doing. I'll also put his LinkedIn account as well, but all that will be down there, so you can literally just go click on that and then communicate with him and be part of his ecosystem. He's got some pretty cool stuff happening. Uh, we were talking offline for the next five, seven years. Big projects happening, so definitely reach out to him. Uh, Mike, again, I really appreciate you being on here today and just unpacking this at a very deep level. Um, always love to ask my guests before I let you go, is there any last words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our audience? You know, we were talking about this before, like, what do you really want to get out? And, you know, I like what you said about doom and gloom. I'm actually an optimist. In fact, it's probably my greatest weakness sometimes. So um, I think we're going to be fine. I think, you know, as a country, we live in the greatest country ever. There's still a ton of opportunity. I think we just have to be realistic because like you said, there's the doomsdayers that were falling off a cliff. And then there's all of the others that have their head in the sand. And I think just somewhere in the middle, um, you know, the, the people that we surround ourselves with, I like to get as many opinions as possible and just kind of bring it together. And so I would just encourage everybody to, you know, try to keep that positive outlook, try to get around as many different voices, um, to kind of formulate your own opinion. So that's what I'd say about it. Well said, man. Well said. That's a lot of good wisdom. Guys, that is the managing partner at Four Peaks Capital Partners and CEO of Velocity Venture Capital, my friend, the one and only Mike Ayala. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis Podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can. Yo, this is Christian D. Evans, Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. We thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode. If you feel and you know that this was valuable to you, please show some love to our amazing guests by liking this, by commenting on this, by making sure that you do a nice five-star review and just show some love to our guests. That'd be really awesome. Also, make sure you share this with a friend, a family, a colleague, someone that you believe would bring value to their life right now. Uh, and guys, we just want to say thank you again for just being part of our community. If you want to have more resources, don't be afraid. Go to christiandevans.com. You can actually schedule a phone call with me or you can send me an email at christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. That's christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. Always love to hear some feedback and let me know what is the number one or two things that you are struggling in your business and your life and we'll make sure we have those conversations. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis podcast. And until next time, remember, be uncommon if you can. Cheers.